and welcome back to another edition of Two Steps Ahead Podcast. Two Steps Ahead Podcast, encouraging you to take your passion, make it happen, let yourself be great. I'm Son Edom, and on the show, we've got a special guest joining us. It's uh, a guy I went to high school with, actually. His name is Cliff Slyke. He was in the Marines, in the Army Reserves, served time overseas in Baghdad, has been um, a part of the uh, military service for over 20 years. And so we're going to get into some of his military service. Also, his expertise, fortunately for us, lies in areas such as Russia, uh, the Middle East, Iran. And so uh, those seems to be some hot spots in the world today with geopolitical activity going on. So we're going to talk to him about that, too, and then just kind of talk about life as a a vet and and uh, post-service and He's got a, a master's degree in vocational rehab and counseling from San Diego State. He also went to uh, Point Loma. And um, and Point Loma, Cliff, first of all, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. But, man, Point Loma, that's a nice Thank campus. You. Oh, it's gorgeous. It's uh, almost too pretty. It's very distracting. <laughs> well, I remember a lot of people from school were going to Westmont in Santa Barbara, and they were claiming how Westmont, you know, in Santa Barbara was pretty cool, but that was up in the hills. Point Loma yeah. is literally in Southern California, and it's literally right there on the beach. How can you beat that? Oh, yeah. Oh, you can't. Uh, people would, in between classes, literally take their surfboard, walk down, and go surfing. And I should have went to Point Loma. I actually thought about it uh, a couple times, went and visited, but then um, they just didn't have the radio broadcasting that I was interested in, and so I chose another route. But um, Marines, what made you decide yeah. to go Marines? Semper Fi. <laughs> Semper Fi. Um, you know, when we graduated in 89, I really did not know what I wanted to do with my life. Uh I found high school boring and I didn't really put much effort into it. I, I put enough so I could, t- could continue playing sports, you know, and I got out. I, well, I graduated, I should say. And I tried working different jobs, tried going to junior colleges, community colleges, and nothing seemed to fit. Uh, I have a family record of service, and I saw a brig recruiter at one of the junior colleges one day, and I just started talking to him. And one thing led to another, and I ended up signing up. So when you look back on that decision, did you think it was going to be a lifelong thing, or was it just something that you thought maybe for the next couple of years I'll do this till I can figure life out? I thought it was something that, uh, you know, I could do this, I could get paid, I could maybe learn a trade, and college will be there when I get back. And, uh, of course, my parents were heavily against it, but I was 21 at the time, and there really wasn't much they could do. Um The thing is, going. I could have made better choices had I been more informed. But I still don't regret doing it. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. I think a lot of people go into it with a mindset of, 
what they see maybe on TV, maybe the commercials that they see that are promoting the military, uh, maybe other things that kind of influence them. And then when they get there, they don't really have the perspective of what real life is about. And so, yeah, I can understand how you get into something that's not quite what you originally thought it was going to be. Well, yeah. And uh, job wise, you know, you sort of get overwhelmed. You, t- you take the ASVAB and I did very well on it. Um, but when, uh, when they present you with some 150 different job choices, it gets overwhelming real quick. And you re I would advise a new person going in to really take their time, look at what their, what the different job choices are and find out how they would apply to being a civilian because whether you serve four years or 20, you're going to be back being a civilian and you want to be able to have some sort of transition. So what did you end up deciding to do? What what was your MOS? Yes. It's called MOS of the army. Uh, I'm part of the Marines. I ended up being a machinist, you know, fabricating and repairing metal. Um, it, you know, I really didn't do much math in high school, but you end up doing a lot of trigonometry when it comes to machining. So when I, I did that, I went to Okinawa. The school was in Maryland. I went to Okinawa. Um, I then in Okinawa worked on vehicles and after that I went to El Toro Marine Base, which is now closed. And that was in, uh, Orange County. And then I went to, oh, what's it called? It's in North San Diego. It used to be where Top Gun was. Amir I actually got the. Thank you. Yes. Uh, then I went to Miramar to help the transition from El Toro to there. And I actually got to see Top Gun and their planes. The commander's plane was a jet black F-18 Hornet. It was pretty sweet. And uh, get, your, get your selfies with them. Get, get uh, your no, pictures no taken with all of them. Get your Instagram moment. <laughs> yeah, I wish. Uh, after that, you know, I was closing in on my four years, and I didn't know if I went to reout. My knees were aching because I had strained them, and I wanted to go back to college. My kid brothers were both at Point Loma. So I decided to put in there and I got accepted. So that was interesting in and of itself, being 25, having served four years in the Corps and being with a bunch of young adults who are 18, 19 years old. And it, it, it was a little bit of a culture shock. <laughs> it was far different than, uh, what I had become used to. So 
I uh, studied history at Point Loma. Actually, I started out as mechanical engineering. And in the drawing class for it, I drew what, and the professor said, you know, if you draw this, the machinists will never know what you're talking about. And sort of like, ah, uh, <laughs> I hate to tell you this, Doc, but <laughs> that's, that's sort of how we do it. And um, I ended up dropping that, and I had to pick a major because of the GI Bill. So I chose history because even in high school, history was probably my favorite class. And, oh, here's an interesting thing. As a machinist, they did so much math and trigonometry that when I took the math assessment at Point Loma, I tested into calculus two. I never got beyond algebra two in high school. So I guess, you know, learning all that math really in the Marines really paid off. And I know most people wouldn't associate math with Marines, but it happens. Um, I studied history and my primary professor was Dr. Bill Wood. If he's still at Point Loma and you go there, take his classes. He makes the class interesting and entertaining. He's thorough in classes that I never had, even in other classes at Point Loma. For instance, uh, it's more than just, you know, the historical facts. You need to know the geography involved. So if we're saying that um, we're talking Russian history and Ivan the Terrible went and laid siege to Novgorod, right? You know where it is. You know the conditions that were happening. You know the environment, the culture. And we also looked at the psychological motivations behind it. Why did these people do the things they did? What was their reasoning? So that fascinated me. And he taught uh, two semesters of Russia, I took from him, two semesters of the Middle East and two semesters of India. So if they offered a minor in non-Western civs, I would have had that. But uh, that's what I chose to focus on. Um, I also found that I already knew I loved reading, and I still do. But um, I took some literature classes at Point Loma, and I absolutely love those as well. So I'm about one class shy of a minor in literature. <laughs> so I, you know, you fill up, you fill up those classes with those free classes that you can pick with what you want. And, um, about the time, let's see, I was about, oh, year out from graduating, I think it was. Uh, when I met my wife, we met in uh, Earth Science class, 
and we just started talking and eventually we went out and uh, a couple years later we ended up getting married um christina has her bachelor's in business from point loma and a minor in music she plays the violin and which is just wonderful uh after that i graduated and i was looking for jobs and received a notification from the VA that they had screwed up, that they should have been paying for college better than what they had been. So I went to speak with them and I said, hey, no, I already graduated. Um, You know, what else can we do? And they offered to pay for a master's program, provided it was the master's of their choice. So my, uh, I I said, sure. And they chose that program at San Diego State. Now, in college, I had the same problem as in high school. I just did enough to get by, right? so, and they usually don't accept the C student into a master's program. But San Diego State had this um, open college program where you could go in and you could take classes. And I did that. I enrolled for them. And there's no prerequisites, but they're part of the program they could be counted towards part of the program I was wanting to do. And I was a little more motivated because I was about ready to get married. And it wasn't just me. This Now it was me and someone else, someone I love for. So I applied myself. And I got straight A's in the graduate program. And uh, I got accepted in. Um, I ended up becoming... Uh, class president. Uh, I ended up working on and developing new things to help disabled students, like um, a mentorship program for deaf students, because they're having a very bad attrition rate with deaf students coming in, not feigning the culture, not getting to know people, and they quit. So we arranged to have someone mentor them and talk to them and work with them when the uh, more advanced students, and it worked out. Their retention rates went up, and last I heard, they were still doing it. So if you're going, but, if you're going through all this education mm-hmm. and you're making these uh, headways into these programs that are really helping – you said that the military had to pick your degree. So did it actually well, work, work out that way? I mean, did it actually work out as a good thing? Because oftentimes when you're forced to do something, you're like, mm, whatever. But it sounds like things were actually went well, despite the fact that they had to kind of direct you where to go. It was their choice. Well, it, it was the VA. The VA is not really military. It's, it's a separate government institution. And that was part of the deal they made with me. You know, if I wanted a master's, they'll pay for it. And the caveat was they chose. And, yeah, I 
I was learning a lot, and I did learn a lot, and I learned a lot about myself in the process. Um, During this time, I did my graduate internship at the San Diego Regional Office, and I was in their vocational rehabilitation office and uh, working there, and then 9-11 happened. And, you know, we had a lot of Navy veterans who were Filipino. The Philippines has a special relationship with the United States because it was a territory for such a long time that if their people want to join the military, they can, and most of them join the Navy. And they're there. These, some of these guys have already put in 20 to 30 years of service and when 9-11 happens, they're on the phone talking to recruiters trying to get back in, even if it's just uh, sitting on a desk, you know, doing something mundane to free other younger people up to be able to go and take care of the mission. And I remember watching the second plane hit when Satan in the conference room watching the newscast. And I went to go back in and I spoke with Christina about it first. And she said, no, absolutely not. You know, we've been married about 11 months at that time. So uh, that was put off. Um, I was close to graduation and we decided to move to Greeley because they had a doctoral program in my field called human rehabilitation here at the University of Northern Colorado. And they have a matriculation agreement with San Diego State. So we moved out here and I finished up my last couple of classes here at UNC and just transferred them in. You know, the C student in high school and in college graduated with the three five from San Diego State from the number seven uh, program in the U.S. You know, and I can't help but looking back and thinking, you know what? I really cheated myself when I was younger. You know, I could have done so much more if I had been more disciplined. If I had actually applied myself but see that's a that's a good that's a good point you make because i think a lot of people do that a lot of people underestimate themselves and and you know that's kind of the 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 backbone of this podcast is is bringing out your inner greatness raising your standard so that you become a better you so that then hopefully that inspires others and that's kind of what you're what you which sounds like you've been doing for yourself and those around you you know you started to apply yourself a little bit more. And so when you're in San Diego, you're helping the deaf community, you're starting to make an impact in these other people's lives. And yeah. so, and so I don't think you have to sit back and be like, if I would apply to myself, because we all could have done that, but now you could look at yeah. the thing, you know, you can look at the things that you've done and be like, wow, this is, I, I'm now, I am now living the potential that I had or that I could have had, but now I'm living that potential that's in me. So I think that's a good thing, regardless of when it comes out, it's coming out now and it's making a big impact. Oh yeah. Um, 
during that time, I also did a lot of volunteer work with disabled veterans outside of at the VA. And I think I got about 15,000 hours total in that. And I, well, maybe 13, it's up there. And when we got to Greeley, I started um, volunteering my time with the local Youth for Christ. And if you don't know what that is, it is sort of like a place where uh, teenagers can go and be safe. And it's uh, started by Billy Graham. And what I would do is just basically provide security there and talk to the kids if they wanted to talk. And I did that for several years. I have, uh, I think, about 2,000 hours working with those kids. But um, I did a – anyways, I did a lot of jo- odd jobs here in Colorado, uh, drug and alcohol counseling, drug and alcohol assessment, you know, appearing in court to testify to my findings on that. So that's how I got to be a legal expert in those fields. Um. Then I went to work for the state of Colorado as a voc rehab counselor. And, you know, we, these programs can do a lot of good, but it's part of a bureaucracy. And the bureaucracy wants to see the lowest amount sped per spent per person with the best possible outcome. Which, of course, that makes sense given that you're using taxpayer dollars. However, the reality is is the less you put into people, the less the outcome's going to be. So we were having revolving door um, people so they come in and help. We spend the money. We help them get trained at the lowest possible level. And then they they go to work. And then they come back later when their disability has gone worse. And I can't do this job anymore. So we retrain them again. Again, it's a little bit more than last time. So they're at a higher level. But then they go and the same thing happens. So they weren't being predictive of the situation. And it was very frustrating because if you would have spent just a little bit more to train that person up to a little bit better job, a little bit better position than the base level, then they'll have more of a chance to be in a job that is more conducive to their disability. And I did that for, for a while. In the middle of that, I started, you know, feeling that itch again that I could help out in the war effort, especially since I had friends who were going over, deploying and going in harm's way. And, you know, I was just sit here, sitting here, you know, doing a regular job. And 
it, it just didn't feel right, you know. So I talked to Christina again, and this time said, okay, you can look into it for, to, I think it was just to appease me. I could look into it. I went and talked to the Marines, and at that point, they said I was too old. You know, I was past the age limit that they would accept. Navy wouldn't even talk to me. Um, Air Force said, you know, we have a lot of enlisted with master's degrees. I'm like, that, that, you know, I'm looking for a possible career transition. I'm not really interested in, you know, something that will end up paying better, more benefits for the family. Um, I'm not really thinking the Air Force would be helpful with that, with me just going back in as uh, enlisted personnel. So I went and talked to the Army, and the Army offered me a direct commission into the reserves, into the Medical Corps. And I agreed, and it was a selection process. And my year, there's about 6% that were, there are six of us that were selected out of the entire U.S., and I was fortunate to be one of those. And I, it was for Army calls the MOS and AOC, Area of Concentration, for healthcare administration. Now, that has changed back and forth a couple of times from medic platoon leader, healthcare administration, to Lord knows what. And they put me with a, a psychology unit out of Aurora. And the people are very nice, but it was the furthest thing away from being in the military and still saying that you're in. Why is that? What uh, what was the difference between, I guess, what you would think of as being in the military versus what you were actually doing? Well, uh, you have not just a bunch of doctors and nurses, but psychiatric doctor and nurses and psychiatric medics. And there's more of a soft touch to it. And... Yeah, we did the training, but it wasn't with the purpose or intensity that I felt it should have been. Um, and I was just sitting there, they're telling me, okay, you're going to do paperwork. I'm all, you haven't even bothered to train me on the paperwork yet. Because uh, with paperwork in the military, you do not want to mess it up because it could really cause problems. So I ended up going to San Antonio, Texas for training, and it was it wasn't healthcare administration training. Uh, they the army decide they want the um, medical side to be more in line with the rest of the army, be more you know tougher and uh, more combat focused and all that. So I was doing stuff like sand tables, uh, intelligence reports, learning how to do those, learning how to do all these other things except for the paperwork. So I get sent back, I finish and I get sent back and 
you know, I tell them what's up. So they say, okay, we'll train you on the paperwork, but it never comes around. And then we go to the rifle range. And this is sort of like the, for me, was the last straw. Uh, See, I was an expert with a rifle in the Marines. And I also coached marksmanship in the Marines. And even though it was a decade earlier, you still remember. And I get there, and they they don't have anyone trained to coach these people on how to shoot. Now, most of them are okay. A couple of them need to work, and I ended up helping them out so they could get their weapon properly zeroed for the range. The weapons they have are a mixture of where, see, there's two main parts to the M16A2. You have your upper receiver and your lower receiver. Your lower receiver is the trigger well and all the mechanicals inside, and your upper receiver is basically the barrel. Well, these rifles had uh, the A2 lower receiver and the A1 upper receiver, so they didn't mesh exactly right. So they're really loose, and you can still fire well with them, fire fine, but, you know, these are, what, 50 years old? <laughs> so <laughs> they have some wear and tear on them. So would, would, these, would I, these be the same guns that they would take then into overseas in the combat with them? I honestly didn't know, mm. and that was worrisome. Um, because then I would want because then because one of the other questions I would would ask is okay, so if you're infantry, okay, over over in combat, and you've got whatever weapon you're using, how much can mm-hmm. you actually carry as far as ammunition and stuff like that, and is that taken into consideration? Um, when they're learning to, because that's always been one thing, you know, how much, how much can you carry and are you dependent upon a mechanized division to continue to bring you some, or are you just out there on your own? Well, Iraq and Afghanistan were one, they're two very different conflicts. Um, with, when you, I knew guys who went out with a triple combat load and that would mean that they had one magazine in the weapon and they would have a total of nine other magazines full on them. So it, it just depended on who, what the mission was, who they were with and what they were doing. But, Support is usually pretty close by. So then you ended up going overseas to Baghdad. So are you in an infantry type of position here, or what was it that you were doing when you went over there? Okay. Um, well, what happened with that is, you know, I was talking about the rifle range. What I did was I caught the commander resting her head on the muzzle of her weapon. And that's a big safety violation, especially for these old weapons. I mentioned to her, and so 
she corrected it, and then it came back later, and she was resting the muzzle on her foot. And that's when I said I needed to find a new unit. And I found that in uh, the human terrain system is that uh, special operations, proof of concept intelligence that mixed uh, military with civilian experts. And I put in for that and I got accepted. I went to the school at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, and it was with the Foreign Military Studies Office. Um, and what it was is we studied counterinsurgency and we studied the culture and how to, how to operate in the environment. And we, um, well, it was one of the most intense, uh, training that I've ever been in. And it wasn't because of the physical side. We had during uh, checking into the post, you know, you have a week to do it. But at the same time, I was having to read a 500 page book on the French experience in Algeria after World War II and their efforts in counterinsurgency and be able to discuss it in depth. So, and that, that was the pace of the training for about four months. And I finished the training um, of all the military personnel. It was myself and two others that ended up making through the course. Uh, they said, hey, we need help in our research reachback cell. And what that was, was say you have a team downrange, they have a big project to do, but it's too big for them to do in country. They send it back to the research reach back cell and they will do the write up and the research and send the report to them. So I said, sure. It was supposed to be two weeks turned into nine months. <laughs> you know, no good deed ever goes unpunished. And at that time, that's when I start really got in depth with studying the Middle East and Islam, because we're doing dozens of reports a week at times. And um, then, uh, you know, after I've done that for a long time, I ended up being sent to Team 2 in Iraq, which covered Abu Ghraib and the northwest part of Baghdad. Now, what we did is we advised on what's going on in the culture or we talked to the right people about the right things. Because just because this guy is presented as the person in charge of um, trash collection doesn't mean he is. Are we, you know, so we did that. We verified people. We um, advised on what to do during uh these cultural events. Um, we worked with uh, human intelligence. We worked with psychological operations, civil affairs, special forces. Um, and we advised uh, lower, well, subordinate units 
on things that are happening in the area as well. Uh, needless to say, we are rather busy, you know, because we had to do, we were doing reports on every, literally everything from why dogs aren't appreciated in Islamic culture to uh, how the political alliances were forming in the parliament because the green zone was our uh, responsibility as well. And it was a very challenging job. But really, when I look back, it was one of the most interesting jobs I've ever had. And it was challenging. And But it struck that balance. You know, there's, there's that, man, this is too easy. Man, this is like crazy too tough. It sort of was on the higher side. Uh, but not at that too tough mark. Um, and, you know, we would go out and talk with people, and there were some, most of it was good. There are some scary incidences, but, um, and we helped hunt down some really bad people. Uh, when, you know, an instance of how culturally different. It is, you know, when you and I are talking, say it gets a little heated, we might be raising our voices at each other. Well, in Iraq, it it isn't just raising voices, it's uh, yelling and it's arm movements and gestures, you know, sort of like, uh, you know, the spoof of, the characterization of Italian um, new Italians in the United States is similar to that. But one time we were out talking to this guy and, you know, we have a perimeter around us and it's filled with civilians and he's really going off like that. And I'm ha- trying to work through an interpreter and it keeps getting worse and worse. And um, the people can't really make out everything that's being said, but it's enough that the crowd is starting to get rowdy. And that, of course, is making the, um, the soldiers nervous because anything can happen in a rowdy crowd, right? And I asked him to, you know, calm down, talk quietly, you know, because people are getting upset and I want to address this problem. And, but he kept doing it and he kept doing it. And I asked him again and he said, he just paused and like I was crazy and kept going. And, what I had is I carried a nine millimeter pistol with me and I had, because of the stigma of a nine millimeter, Saddam, as a Saddam used to execute people with a nine millimeter. So that type of pistol is very feared. And so I'd keep it tucked under my arm and back. So they couldn't see it right away with the body arm and everything like that. And finally, I just lifted my arm up, and it slid on down, and the guy noticed. 
So, and that's where it started calming down. So basically I had to threaten to kill the guy to keep peace in the area. And, uh, you know, yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of a difficult situation to be in. And I wouldn't want to be in that situation again. What, what was we, it? What was it? What was it like with, uh, okay. So you had that encounter, but kind of like overall the, the people that were in the, the local people in the villages or the people that just kind of came across that really weren't a part of what you were doing specifically. What, what was, what was that engagement? Like, were they happy? Were they mad you were there? I mean, what was everyday like dealing with just with the, the locals? Like, I had some local interpreters that worked for me and, you know, they were very nice. They, there was, we, okay, when you get, when you're talking about Baghdad, we're talking about a major, major city who has, still has the ancient tribal affiliations going on in there. So if you're part of one tribe, uh, you might not be getting along with another tribe. And if they're, they're, that one tribe is seen as being favored by the U.S., who doesn't know that they're, fa- they're fa- favoring them, they're just talking to them, you know, that could cause some unrest in another tribe a little while, you know, that's next to them. So, some days it seemed like any given day they're going to be happy to see you. Sometimes they're not. Um, and it all, so engagement was very important and it had to be constant. And you had to assure people that, yes, I'm meeting with them, but you know, it's just like I'm meeting with you. We're, we're all on the same level here. And then you have the influences of the different, um, insurrectionist groups, and then you have the influence of organized crime. So, what what I say was complex. It, it was a jigsaw puzzle. Yeah, it sounds um, like that. So, did you? I mean, you, okay. So you talk about like organized crime. You talk about some of these. I guess I don't know if you want to say not war entities, but these are probably things that are going on regardless of what you guys were doing there anyways. If you have some of these organized yeah. crime and, and these, uh, you know, tribal relationship things going on. I mean, this all has nothing to do specifically with war. I'm sure this goes on regardless. So yeah. how do you handle all that? Or do you have a certain purview that, okay, we're just going to work in this scope and this is what we deal with, and the rest, they just have to take care of it themselves? Or did you intervene in all of it? Well, you know, we didn't intervene in stuff like organized crime, especially after Obama granted, um, you know, jurisdiction back over to the Iraqis. But what we did do is we talked to people. We found out who who was running things literally, you know, who is the face and who is the true power. And by doing that, you know, we could say, Hey, we're not, we're not trying to favor anybody. We're not trying to put one group in front of the other. We're trying to solve problems. And, uh, and that sort of crossed a number of boundaries that brought things together. 
because when they start saying that, hey, yeah, we are doing a solution here, we are trying to actually help, that made a big difference. Um, things, the thing is, uh, the insurgent groups threw wrenches into things left and right. For instance, um, in the Shula district, which is the very north central or northwest part of Baghdad, north northwest, um, they set up, I discovered they set up a safe house. And from there, they're terrorizing the population, um, rape, murder, burglary, uh, theft, you name it. And the way we found out where they were hiding was there's a Islamic tradition that if you want Allah to bless something, to protect something, you would sacrifice a goat or a sheep, put your hand in the blood and put, uh, put your handprint on the thing you want protected. And there's handprints all over this house. Usually it's typically one. Now, normally, if we didn't have that cultural knowledge and, and experience, we may have never found out because the population was too scared to talk about it. Uh, there was so many, um, well, seven special forces groups sent a team out to observe when I made the report and there was so many insurgents in there that they did not want to go in. It would have been very bad. So they called up one of the SEAL teams to come and help out. And in the main part of the house, the middle of the night, they lined the walls with C4 and blew them in from both sides, uh, eliminating the threat. I actually am still in contact with a couple of the guys from seventh group and, um, because the intel I sent them was good and I didn't take risks with what I was saying them. I made sure everything was verified and we just developed a really good report. Now, um, what that did for the population. It means we kept our word about wanting to provide safety and stability. And that rose our, you know, our standing in the community a great deal. Because here we are, we aren't just talk, we're action. We do what we say we're going to do. And there, that was uh, probably the biggest incident that I was involved in where that would show, you know, what we're doing and why. Did you, I know when you're over there, you might not have access to news, but was, nowadays news has credibility issues, okay? But was what was being reported back to, let's say us in the States, was it pretty accurate then? Or were you guys experiencing things that weren't even making the news? Because I'm sure, like one of the things that became kind of a common theme was trust. 
Who do you trust? How do you earn the trust? We can't trust anybody because they might, like you said, are they really this person or is somebody else really in charge? Are they really this farmer or are they an insurrectionist that's going to be there and trying to scout plot whatever? So there's a lot of these different things that kind of came across as you guys are dealing with trust issues. Who can you trust? Uh, everybody's unfriendly. Nobody wants you there. But then when you start to talk, you hear kind of a different story. And so yeah. what I guess the, my question then would be to you, reality versus the perception that we've got through news media, press releases and stuff like that. What was, was there a big difference? Was it pretty accurate? Did it depend on who um, was in office? I, I, you know what? All the above. <laughs> um, when I, when I was over there, I had a friend who was an officer in the 82nd airborne, who was across the river from us. And they were doing these micro loans, to the community that's $5,000 or micro grants to businesses to help them get started again, rebuild the economic activity. And they were on foot patrol and they went by to check on him, see how he's doing. And it was, it was, he was very celebratory, you know, dancing with his hands in his hair, thanking them, inviting him into his home. And, you know, but what happened was an unauthorized reporter slipped out of one of the bases and saw this going on, Take took pictures and all that. And she said that they were, you know, soldiers were partying with the locals and this guy was a pimp with four prostitutes. Well, those were his wives, you know, and he was being thankful for helping him get his business started again. And there was no alcohol involved or anything like that. But that report is very damaging, you know, and I, I hope the gentleman that was celebrating never saw that news report because not only was it insulting, it, it was um, it honor and shame are a big deal in that culture. So it would have shamed him greatly. Now that's the problem with counterinsurgency is they're hiding in the population. So you must integrate yourselves with the population and understand their culture and speak with them in a manner that uh, is respectful on their, on their terms. Uh, it's because of this that we were able to catch um, one insurrectionist. His, uh, I forget his r- real name, but we called him Crazy Eyes because he was severely walled-eyed and with both eyes. Uh, he was trying to fuel... Um, uh, tensions between the Shiites and the Sunnis. So he was personally credited with some 95 kills where he would just go in and execute Shiites and and then execute Sunnis, trying to get them to fight each other. Uh, At one point, he even killed his own father-in-law. Well, when the heat from the U.S. started to get on him, he went and 
fled to Iran where he had surgery to correct his eyes. And it was through local informants that we knew he was coming back. And we knew he wanted to avoid our area for the moment. And they stay, he stayed on the other side of the river. See, he, the Iraqis knew that um, areas of operation were limited to certain units. So the 82nd Airborne was in the northeast quadrant. That's where they were operating. We were operating in the northwest quadrant. So we weren't allowed to go over each other's boundaries to go after bad guys. And that's so we don't have any friendly fire incidents, but they use it to their advantage. So what we ended up doing is working with psychological, psychological operations and creating wanted posters of it and telling people he's back in the area. And we did it in a way, think of like a hounds flushing a deer while hunting. And we did it so he ended up moving towards the bridge and across it into our area, and we arrested him. Um, but we knew we touched a sore, uh, touched an herbal and riding in that Black Hawk, and we started taking fire. <laughs> they weren't too happy with us. <laughs> Was your overall, was your experience there? I mean, did you like it there? Obviously, you're in a combat zone, and so it wasn't vacation. But, I mean, did, yeah. you, did you like it there? Yeah, and, you know, it's more than just what we're doing. It's the people who you are there with, you know, the soldiers, the civilians we were working with, whether they're Iraqi or others. Um, I was fortunate enough to work with uh, two Sudanese lost boys, who are working as interpreters. Uh, they, a funny incident, they made Sudanese peanut sauce for a, like a, a luncheon we did for people who are um, civilians working with us. And it is the hottest thing I ever tasted. I've had ghost peppers. I've you know, I've had Carolina Reapers. Holy smokes. <laughs> that that hot, and huh? They thought, it, they thought it was hilarious that how, you know, the reactions of people, and they were just sitting there eating it. And, um, you know, but it's things like that, like uh, going out to a FOB, a Ford, uh, Ford operating base, and seeing that they need something, you bring it along with you. And like this one, they had a grill and they were buying meat from the local markets, but they didn't have any charcoal. So next time we went out, we took charcoal with them. And, you know, so we're showing that we're not just providing intelligence operational support. We're there to support, you know, the team. We're part of the team. And it it's the memories of the people are, is what matters. Um, I had one of my guys, one of my 
actually two of my interpreters who are local nationals, because they're helping us, them and their families were put under a death sentence. I worked night and day and to get them out. And finally, the, um, the State Department agreed. And all I know now is they're somewhere in Virginia, but hey, you know, they're safe. Uh, one of my civilians, he, he was an Iraqi who became an American citizen who is an interpreter and uh, researcher with me on my team. After I got hurt and left, he was, um, he was kidnapped, Issa Salome. And he was held for four months by insurrectionists and he made it out alive. And, uh, you know, I'd had my first surgery right when this happened and I volunteered to go back because I knew all of his contacts. But they said no. So, you know, I, part of me feels like, you know what, I could have helped them get free sooner, you know. But realistically, odds are, if, you know, he was just spotted in an area one too many times and, you know, they identified a pattern in his movements and capitalized on it. But, um, would you, so out, outside of those incidences, would, would, was it, discouraged to to remain in contact with just people that you met? Like, you know, if it was just a, a friendly situation or a non-combative situation or whatever the people came across, or was that something that you could have done? It was just difficult to do because of where they're at. Well, it with the, with the interpreters, um, that one I, I can't have contact with, uh, with people I worked with, a lot of them, you know, we sort of went our separate ways. Uh, I do keep in contact with a few of the people. Um, as for the local population, you know, it was very difficult to make real lasting relationships when you're seen so many people, you're doing so many things and you have very little time. The only, the only thing you could do is be genuine, you know, make, don't make a promise that you cannot keep. That is the golden rule. And, uh, you just do the best you can, you know, and like I said, be genuine be trustworthy, keep your word. And things, you, when that happened, things usually went okay. So what, um, so eventually your, your time there ends, you come back. And so what, what's uh, going on now? Well, what happened was I was coming back off in a mission. I was right in the back of an MRAP, which is one of those big up armored vehicles, uh, that's um, mine resistant. And you know, you know how there's speed bumps and then a little bit bigger, there's speed humps. And then we had even bigger ones. So civilian trap, if a civilian got on base and there's a car, they couldn't just go anywhere, you know? 
but the MRAPs could go over it. And the MRAP hit the speed hump too fast. It was literally a new guy. He just got in country a week prior. He was just out of school's training to be a truck driver. And I was sitting in the back in a five-point harness with my full kit and gear on. So that's about 50, 60 pounds. And he hit it so hard that I went up into the ceiling. And then I came crashing back down. Um, I was, uh, I didn't know how badly I was hurt. I was on 3,200 Motrin four times a day. And I kept working for about four more months until it just got to be too much. And I got myself sent to lawn stool to get checked out in Germany. And they just said, you're done. You're going home. You're not going back. You're go-. Actually, they sent me to Walter Reed. What had happened was um, I had compressed between my C1 vertebrae in my skull when my head hit the ceiling. And it's a good thing I was wearing a helmet. Um, I tore the labrums in both shoulders. I herniated three discs in my back. I had minor tears at the time in both my hips. And, you know, it's just... You know, what are you going to do at that point? <laughs> so I I went to Walter Reed and got some basic treatments. And then they, after several months, they sent me home to uh, here in Greeley and working with a uh, ROTC unit while I had my surgeries and whatnot. So I had surgery, two surgeries on my right shoulder to fix it. Uh, the problem, the reason I need a second one is because something happened afterwards during physical therapy where it, uh, it caused an impingement. So they had, I couldn't raise it up my arm past 90 degrees. So they had to go back in there. And so two surgeries on the right one, the left. I worked at ROTC for teaching at college level for oh, about two years while all this is going on. And then a year and a half. And then I got in an argument with command because they wanted certain reporting requirements that were not possible with where I was and what I was doing. So I got sent to Fort Riley, Kansas. And... There I did, I just waited the paperwork process. And during physical therapy, I tore my right rotator cuff. And I still haven't got, this was like 2012 timeframe. I still haven't gotten that fixed because shoulder surgeries really aren't pleasant. <laughs> and I can live with it. Ah, sorry. Um, then I was re- you know, after all the paperwork was done and they lost the paperwork a number of times, I was retired in 2014. And, you know, I tried doing a number of things. Um, 
going back to school. I, I was doing that. I was doing a finance major over at University of Northern Colorado, but the school wanted me to retake a bunch of classes because I hadn't taken them in 10 years. And the VA balked at that, so we did other things. And um, I actually became certified in heavy equipment and crane operations, so I know how to work those. But a short time after that, my right hip really flared up bad, and they did new MRIs on it. I, I went through a civilian doctor because, you know, I, I have issues sometimes with the VA. And they found inch and a quarter to inch and a half long arthritic spikes in the hips. And it was tearing up soft tissue, more soft tissue than it had been doing for a while. So that led to my first hip replacement on the right. And my, I just less than a month ago had my left one done as well. So I'm still recovering, which is why you're seeing this odd angle. I'm off my phone. <laughs> well, I appreciate you coming on with, uh, despite the pain and everything that you've been going through and sharing your story. It's pretty amazing. I have one more question for you, and then I'll give you the final thoughts. Mm-hmm. Your white Mustang in high school, what happened to it? Well, oh, my, gosh. Mine got, I... mine got obliterated on Lassen Boulevard by a drunk driver. Fortunately, I wasn't in the oh. car, but... Uh, so my, my Mustang got obliterated. So that's how my ended. But I remember you had one. I think Shane had one. Um, what happened to yours? Hopefully it's had a better ending than mine. You know what? I honestly don't know. It got passed down to my brother, Chris, who was two years behind us. Mm. And, uh, at some point my dad just sold it. Yeah. And I, I wish I had it back. That was a, fun car it only had that straight six engine in it yep. but it was still fun yeah those, those, those were fun cars like i said they were uh there's like you know three of us i think that had them but uh, mine ended uh yeah. in a bad way and maybe hopefully yours had a better ending than mine but um anything else you want to just kind of add as we kind of wrap things up as uh but again i really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your story and letting us know exactly what you've been going through and um and your experience in the military and stuff, because it really is a yeah. amazing uh, story that you have. And just listening to it is, um, I mean, it's just intriguing, all the things that you went through. And, again, we can't thank you enough for your service and what you've done. We oh. really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. You know, even through all this, life is good. God is good. You know, uh, I have a just beautiful and amazing wife who's been with me on this whole journey. Um, My oldest daughter's 18. I have a son that's 16 and uh, another daughter that's eight. And they are my world and they're just, they're wonderful. Um, I just lost my train of thought. I got a little bit, (laughs) a little bit misty on there. Well, no, I mean, it's, it's, Um, it's good because it's even despite, all the pain and everything that you're going through, at least you're still there to be able to be a part of their lives, you know, uh, yeah. and, and grow up with them, you know, and, and, and be there with them. And I think that's an experience that um, a lot of families would like to have that probably don't have uh, right now. And so you're in that position. So yeah, um, that's a good place to be. And so it's, uh, if that's what you, you know, are there for, that is absolutely a perfect reason to be there. Don't need to be yeah, facing yeah. around anymore. You, you've done your service and now you can enjoy the family. <laughs> 
Yeah. And in the meantime, you know, I'm just, uh, a lot of what we did or what I was trained on is called open source intelligence. And I've, um, I put those skills to use. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll get calls every once in a while from, uh, friends that need assistance with looking at a problem and analyzing it or what's going on in assessment of what's going on in Ukraine or what's going on in the Baltics. Uh, I got one to, uh, help with an extraction of a family. Unfortunately, that did not go well, but, um, uh, helping a veteran get a government contract. Uh, I'm on two of those right now, uh, where, you know, hopefully something comes of it. And so I'm keeping myself busy, you know, and I'm enjoy listening to your podcast and I look forward to seeing more of them. And hopefully we could talk about stuff like the Middle East and Ukraine and Russia in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And, Those were some of the things that uh, have on the agenda, but just listening to your stories there from your experience in the past is uh, was intriguing. So I just wanted to let you go with those. And then, like I said, maybe we can connect here in the near future again and talk about some of the, the new developments that are happening. Because, again, I, I did want to touch on, uh, and I do want to touch on your expertise in – um, you know, areas of the Middle East, Russia, and things like that that you've learned and experienced like that. Because I think it's going to be that's the next future. That's the next thing that we're probably facing, I would imagine. Yeah. So, um, so I'm sure that that's a conversation to have. And so I'd like to do that at some point in the future too. So let's look forward to that. Um, I'd be happy to, and hopefully next time I could, or another time I could share some of the funny stories that happen because there there is a lot of things that happen that are just they aren't going to happen anywhere else, and they're funny as heck. Well, let's let's plan that for sure because I'd love to to revisit and go over something. Like we could carry this conversation, I'm sure, forever um, with so much going on. But um, but again, I just truly appreciate you taking the time, coming on, sharing with us um, your experience, uh, what you went through, and all that you've done. I mean, you know, saving lives and you know having the the decency to learn about the the locals and their, you know, customs and traditions so that you can, mm-hmm. you know, respect them and stuff. And so again, we just appreciate it. And again, thank you for your service and we'll definitely do this again. Uh, I look forward to it. And you know what? Next time I'm out your way, I'll buy the first round. All right. Sounds good. I'm going to hold you to that. <laughs> Cliff Slyke, my guest, uh, again, a guy that was, as you heard in the military, but also a Friend from high school, played football together, had similar cars, and so a lot of uh, mutual interests as well. And I just wanted to get him on to, to talk about uh, his service in the military and, again, another veteran that we truly appreciate uh, his service. And so, um, again, Two Steps Ahead podcast, encouraging you to take your passion, make it happen, let yourself be great. Check out our website at RadioWarp.com. That's Radio W-A-R-P, RadioWarp.com. You can click on the logo and all of our shows pop up, and you can listen to the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. Uh, again, Cliff, thanks so much. We appreciate it, and we will be definitely doing this again. All right. Thank you. Take care now. And for those appreciate of you, your time. you bet. And for those of you listening, hey, thanks for listening. Do tell a friend. And until next time, God bless.